Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, everyone. And if you've slipped in or might be listening to this um, online, my name is Ryan. I am the youth and worship pastor here and excited to continue our series in the chapter of Mark. We've been in Mark for what seems like a really long time because we were in Mark last year and we're in Mark this year and we're now in um, chapter eight of Mark. And we break it up into manageable chunks. We're in a chunk now um, called Perceive. And the sort of subtitle is when we struggle to see the goodness of God in the ministry of Jesus. And when we struggle to perceive God's goodness. And there's some passages where it's harder to do this. Where we look at the passage and we look at what's happening and we go, wow, this is tough. I'm, I'm not sure I can quite easily perceive or see or understand God's goodness in this passage Um, But it is always there. But there's some passages like today's very well-known account where it might seem quite clear and quite obvious. And yet it is something that is so important for us to grapple with. It is so important for us to hold tightly our belief in the goodness of God. I believe there is a scheme to undermine the goodness of God. I believe there is a scheme to undermine the goodness of God. There is a scheme from the enemy and there is a scheme in this world to attack our belief and conviction in God's goodness. In in Genesis 3, where everything sort of goes haywire for the world, right? Where we we know the story of Adam and Eve and the fruit um, and the temptation that comes, but the serpent comes to tempt. And, And he attacks two things predominantly. God's word, did God really say, right? And we know that's being attacked. There is always a temptation to trust in God's word. But the second thing is, is God's goodness. He knows that if you have this, you will be like him. In other words, that God's motive isn't pure. That he's trying to withhold something good from Adam and Eve. And the doubt in God's goodness is always the beginning of our disobedience. It always plays a role. Our doubt that God is good and his rules are perfect and his guidelines for our lives are right and pure and for our benefit, a doubt in his goodness is always at the beginning of disobedience. When we doubt his goodness, we will question his word. The enemy is attacking this truth venomously. We see this in mockery of God's word. People coming out to mock and to, to, to point at his, his word and things that have happened and take things out of context and to point at actions in the world and to bring a, an attack that God can't be good. There are whispers in our hearts, if we're honest, in our minds as we go through some of our darkest moments, in our biggest trials, in our pain, there are whispers in the back of our head that tell us God can't be good. God can't be good. There is distraction all around us to bring us away from seeing the good that is actually there. And there is deception to try and convince us that God is against our happiness and that the two are in conflict. I believe that a small vision of God will make it hard for us to see amidst all of this warfare to see God's goodness. 
And so I want to ask you right out the bat, do you believe that God is good? And I pray that whether it is with conviction because you're experiencing his goodness and tasting and seeing it, the words that the scriptures use, or whether you're in a hard time, but you're choosing to believe it, that you can say today, yes, I believe God is good. But I know for all of us at some point that can be a struggle. That praying, and I am praying and trusting that because of this passage and because of what God is saying to us today, that we will see his goodness and his greatness. That we will know that God is all-powerful, omnipotent, but also all-good, benevolent, and kind. And so, as always, I like to give us a roadmap. I'm going to give us a roadmap for today so you, you can see the signs as we go along and go, okay, we're almost done. We're almost there. And so today we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000, right? And we're going to draw out three main points from this account. I then want to ask us a question And then we'll end with some application and some prayer. And I'm trusting this will be a time of challenge and encouragement for us all. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a far way. I want to stop here and draw out two two things. And the first one's not quite obvious. In fact, it's probably not one of the more plain points of the passage. But it was something that really struck my heart as I read. It was something I hadn't really seen before. And that is the devotion of the crowd. It's the devotion of the crowd. He, He says, they have been with me for three days. They have had nothing to eat. They have fasted for three days just to be in Jesus' presence and to be under his word. And he says some of them have even traveled from far away just to be with Jesus, just to hear his word. This crowd seemed to have been willing to, to seek God's presence, to seek his word, and to do that they sacrificed They sacrificed. They they allowed themselves to be inconvenienced out of a desire to seek Jesus. To seek Jesus. They chose the nourishment of Jesus' words over the nourishment of bread. And I looked at that and I went, wow, that's so quickly passed over. It's really not the main point of the passage, but it's still something that just challenged me. And I wondered, where is my devotion at? Because this sort of devotion continued into the early church. As we read in Acts in chapter 2, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. They were devoted. Devotion is a part of our Christian DNA. It's a part of our Christian DNA. It is to love God. Devotion, I looked it up, thought, oh, let me be fancy and look up the definition of devotion. And it means to love, to show loyalty, to be faithful. And Jesus says that the greatest command for all of us is to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. To be willing to regularly deny our own needs. To be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of knowing Jesus. I was trying to think of an illustration of of the kind of devotion that might honor God. 
And there's probably not an adequate one. But what I could remember was this movie that a friend of mine had forced me to watch based on a true story. All right. And this movie, I don't know, you might have heard it, is called Hachiko. Okay. I didn't sneeze. That's the name of the movie. Okay. And Hachiko is, is a true story. Um, it actually happened. It's in, it was in newspapers and headlines. It was, Hachiko was the name of a Japanese Akita dog. Okay, so one of these small sort of dogs. Now, if you're going to watch this movie after I share this with you, I will warn you, bring tissues. Okay, I'm not a big crier, but you will need tissues for this movie, okay, as with any dog movie, and rightly so, okay. Haichiko was the pet of a professor in Tokyo, okay? So he gets this dog, and they have this routine now. He brings this dog into Tokyo. He goes off to lecture. At the end of the day, he gets the train back to the station, and every day... This dog would meet him at the time that the train would come to the station and they would walk back home together every single day. And they did this for 18 months. 18 months, this dog would meet his owner at the station, no problem, end of the day, they'd walk home together until, sadly, the owner passed away, suddenly. And it's quite sad. It gets sadder when you read on and see that this dog continues to be at that station every day at that time for nine years until its death. For nine years, this dog would go there waiting for his owner who would never come. And I was like, oh, that's a tough illustration to share. That dropped the mood quite quickly. But what an illustration of devotion. Hey, I think we can learn from dogs. I think, God's in, I think God created dogs to show us what loyalty looks like what unconditional love looks like, and what kind of devotion should we show to our God who is alive and there for us and wants to meet with us. He wants to meet with you every morning over coffee as you read the scriptures and pray. He wants to meet with you on your commute. He wants to be with you as you are doing your work and your vocation. He has gifted you and called you and he wants our devotion. He is jealous for it because he knows it's the best thing for us and because it honors him. Our devotion to Jesus is so important. And so we have to ask ourselves as we look at this crowd who aren't perfect by any means of the imagination. When last did you spend time with Jesus in his presence and his word? When last did you do it at the expense of something? When last did we make sacrifices to be with him? And I thought it was important to make a distinction here. Not when last did we make sacrifices to serve God. Right? That's in some ways, without undermining service, easier. It can be really, if we think about that story of Mary and Martha, it should jar us. Because Mary's doing everything. Right? Cleaning the dishes, serving the food, preparing the table. God's, God's here. I want to I I honor God with my service. I'm running around. I've got to honor God with my service. I'm sacrificing my energies, blood, sweat, tears. Maybe not blood. I don't know. Maybe she cut herself in the kitchen. But she's giving to God with her service. But Mary's at the feet of Jesus. And there's this phrase where he says, oh, but Martha, one thing is necessary. All these other things are good. Service is great. God honors our service. But one thing is necessary to be in my presence, to sit at my feet and to hear my words. In a culture that is attacking God's goodness and is attacking our beliefs in Jesus, we are being bombarded, bombarded with information 
all the time. The series we watch, the movies we watch, the newspapers we read, the people we talk to. We are bombarded with lies all the time. Why would we not be making every effort to renew our minds and combat those lies by spending time with Jesus and in his truth? We need to be devoted devoted people and I'm sure we are all trying our hardest hey we we are busy but busyness is the greatest tactic of the enemy to keep us away to keep us distracted and so maybe it's time for us to look at our calendars and our diaries and go God where do I need to make some sacrifices where do I need to be spending time with you the second thing I thought we'd want to note here in this passage is the compassion of the Christ. It's so clear, right? Jesus sees this very practical need among this crowd. He looks at them. And he's like, oh, these people have been with me. And I don't think this is conditional compassion. I don't think Jesus is only compassionate because they've been devoted. I don't think that's the case at all. But he looks at this crowd and he goes, they're hungry. They've come from far and they might faint on their trip. And he sees the situation and his heart is moved with compassion. And there's so many stories like this in the New Testament where Jesus is overwhelmed by compassion with Lazarus and with, with, the, with Jerusalem as he weeps for their sin. And his compassion motivates him to do so much. And in the Old Testament, again, God is called a God of compassion. And the Jews believed it. Israel believed that God was a God of compassion, even when he was disciplining them. But we need to know today and every day that God is not blind to our needs. He sees them. He longs to meet them. He sees when we have deep spiritual needs, the need for transformation, the need for, for our desires and wants to be, to be uh, conditioned and changed to match the ones he wants us to have. But he also sees when we have the most basic and simple and practical needs like food. He knows what we need and he longs to provide for us in powerful ways, supernatural ways. And his provision to us is always motivated by his compassion. Always. He is good. But we come to the space when if we're honest with us, sometimes it feels like our needs aren't being met. And we can't ignore that. So what do we do? How do we handle it when it feels like our needs are not being met, but we believe God is good? And we could do a whole series of sermons on this because it is a wrestle. It is where walking by faith and not by sight actually comes to the forefront. But I've got a few minutes, so I'm going to give it a bash. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you three points that have helped me as I've tried to wrestle with this, where there's disappointment and there's lack, and I'm wondering, God, surely this is a need you'd want to meet. Will you meet it? Will you meet it in a different way? How do I wrestle when it feels like God is not meeting my needs? And I think the first thing, and it's, it's a bit of an odd place to start, I think the first thing is we need to recognize the difference between a transactional and a relational connection with God. Right? And that sounds very technical, but we can get trapped in the mindset of relating to God in a transactional way. Do you know, like I do this and therefore that requires this response. I do that. It's like an ATM or a, or a genie that we think we, we do this formula 
And the outcome is this response. And that's a broken way of thinking because our relationship with God is a relational dynamic relationship. Like it is with any person. You see, we, we treat objects relation, uh, transactionally, but we treat people hopefully relationally. And if we swap that in any relationship, it's not right. If you think about a marriage where there is a transactional understanding, right? It's broken. It won't work. If you're only being um, loving and kind, if they're meeting the exact requirements that you've set out, that's not what relationship is. You're treating someone like an object. Imagine doing it with your kids, (laughs) right? They never, I can imagine, well, I never did what my parents told me to do. And so if my parents only loved and provided for me when I did what they asked in a transactional way, that would have been a broken way of relating. We can see how this pays out. That doesn't mean that there's not action and response because in relationship, there is action and response. It's just not as binary as transaction. Okay, that sounded very technical, but I think it's so important. It is a broken way to, to relate to people transactionally. It's a broken way to relate to God transactionally. And sometimes when we get caught in that, we then get disappointed because we think, well, God, I did my part. I entered my code. Why did I not get my need? And we need to just start there and accept that's actually not the way the Bible teaches a relationship with God works. The second thing is, is just to encourage you, God's goodness is a truth to hold, not a point that needs to be proven, right? And this might seem like a less practical, helpful thing, but in those moments of hurt and lack and need, it's the belief that God is good that should draw us to him in our perplexity, in our confusion, and bring us comfort rather than us standing saying, God, you need to prove to me that you are good. God needs to prove nothing. He just doesn't need to prove anything. And I'll get on to why I believe that in a moment. But faith is choosing to believe despite the circumstance. I believe every unmet need is an opportunity to trust God, to trust that he is good. It's choosing to believe in his goodness because his goodness is not defined by what he does and does not do. He does and does not do what he does because he's good. That was a roundabout, wasn't it? He acts because of his goodness. He's not good because of his acts. You see the difference. And so every time there is an unmet need, that is even motivated by compassion. We just need the humility to go, okay, I'm going to trust that that's the case. That every setback and every disappointment is God plotting for our greater joy in a way that is beyond understanding. That's why... When Paul says, pray, rejoice in everything and pray about anything and everything with all supplication, bringing your needs before God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, the peace that is beyond understanding. And thirdly, and in some ways more importantly, the reason we can do this, the reason we can still trust God and draw near and say, you are good despite what seems to be a lack of meeting my need, a lack of goodness, is because the greatest evidence of his goodness has already been given in the cross. 
the greatest evidence of God's goodness is in the cross. And when I find myself in those dark spaces going, God, I'm struggling to believe your goodness. The best thing to do is to look at the cross of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made, and to remind myself that is the passion of the Christ that is the greatest evidence of his compassion. It is his death on the cross that tells me full stop, exclamation mark, without any doubt, God is for me. That's what it says in Romans 8. If he did not withhold his one and only son, how then will he not give us everything we need? And we can argue about what we might need, but we can never argue that God is not for us because of the cross. He entered into suffering, into pain, takes our debt and bridges the gap so that we could enter into life abundance. And he takes all of the risk and the cost and says, I love you and I'm here and this is the proof and it should be more than enough. And my task in the dark spaces is to orient my heart to go, yes. Yes, I don't need any more proof that you are for me. My heart and my flesh may fail me, but God is my portion and and my pleasure forever. We look to the cross in our darkest moments and there we see a light beacon shining God's goodness to us, screaming, he loves you. So let's carry on in the story and see how this compassion of Jesus plays out. Verse four, his disciples answered him. They look at this need as well. They go, yeah, we can see the need, but how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. He continues in verse seven. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed those, he said to them that they should set them before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. And they went to the district of Dalman Nutha. And here we see the means of a miracle. Two means. We see Jesus meeting this need of this crowd in a supernatural way. Reminding us that no matter what our need is, He knows it and he is able to meet it. He is always able to meet every need we have. And the disciples, they they forget this. They can't see this despite the fact that however many chapters earlier, they've already had the feeding of the 5,000. Now they get to the sequel, which is the 4,000, and they just don't seem to remember that Jesus is able to provide despite what's available or how little it is. And so the disciples ask, how can? And Jesus says, how much is there? Just bring it to me. There is a need and he provides miraculously. He delights in taking the very little that we are willing to bring him in humility and to use it to bless those in need. Let me say this, that God does great things with little offerings. In fact, he does some of the greatest things with little offerings. There's a reason in the scriptures you see God chooses the the smallest nation to be his people. God's not into grandeur. 
He's not into the, the big show and big, big and flashy. He's into humility and surrender and taking little things to do great works. Some loaves and fish. And you may have heard sermons on these passages, the 5,000, 4,000, whatever it is, and you've heard this said, but let me remind you, do not hesitate to bring to God the little you have because it may be the startup for something so glorious. The startup for something glorious. But I wanted to also look at something else. The second means here, which I felt was worth noting and I thought would be so encouraging for us. The disciples play a role. The disciples are involved. They are, I thought this would be a great name for a movie, agents of provision, right? Agents of provision. It says that he gave the loaves as he was breaking and blessing. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And it made me think of, of a sort of restaurant scene, right? A chef scene, but where Gordon Ramsay's not involved, okay? Because there'd just be too much nastiness. Um, okay, shouldn't have gone there. Backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. Okay. But I don't know if you've been to a great restaurant where the food was amazing and you walked away going, that was the best steak or the best burger or the best fillet of chicken, like schnitzel, whatever it was that you've ever had. And you're like, but wow, that waiter was terrible. And it just ruined the experience for you. They just, they didn't steward that space well and they didn't steward the food well. They, they didn't sort of, you know, create the atmosphere for you to actually go, well, and you know, the food was perfect and I'd come back because I'm sure the chef's amazing, but the waiters just didn't play their part. I remember every um, Sunday, we had a Sunday evening service in Cape Town and very often the young people in the holidays would go to this place, it was called Spurred, it was a steak ranch and they'd go there, we'd sit around big tables and they'd order some milkshakes and some people would order plates of chips to share and, and, and we just, it was a great time. But we had this one interesting sort of era or couple of weeks where I, I heard from some of my young people, they go, Ryan, there's this, there's this waitress at the Spur and she's, she's really nasty. She keeps like mocking people for not ordering alcohol and we're underage and we're not. And then she like laughs at our orders and then she swears at us. I'm like, this can't be right. I'm like, I need to go and see. So the next Sunday I went and it was true. So I ordered a milkshake and she looked up at me and she's like, a milkshake. And, I was, and she's like, huh? It's like, we'll make it double thick. I'll have a, I'll, I'll have a bigger one. And, you know, and. And it was just this, but there was just this smugness about, and it wasn't really nice and you don't want to bash people, but they were just, there was, and I spoke to the manager after he said, no, it's been consistent. We're probably going to let her go. She's just been consistently rude to people. Doesn't really value the job that she's doing. But how of a blessing and a privilege is it us, for us to be waiters of God's food, to be stewards of his miraculous provision, right? We get to respond. To res- to steward and to give and to dispense his miraculous provision. And what that means is you get to be part of the answer to someone's prayer. How amazing does it feel when someone's in a space of need and you maybe don't even know it and you respond to a prompt of God or the spirit moves you in a moment of compassion and you go and do something and they go, this is just what I needed. In this time, in this moment, I needed God to show me his compassion and you were the agent of that provision. You were the agent of that compassion. You didn't make the food. You just stewarded it well. You just brought it. You didn't drop it along the way. How amazing. What a privilege. Are we, are we tuned into that? To be looking for opportunities to be agents of provision. 
And so as we've looked at the story, I want to ask you that question. What do you see? What do you see as Jesus powerfully provides compassionately for this crowd where there's leftovers? They started with seven loaves. Now they have seven baskets. I mean, that just shows us the completeness of this provision of the power of this miracle. What do you see? Because Mark is not writing this account so that we would have an interesting idea or interesting thoughts. He is challenging us to say, who do you say Jesus is? When you see this, who do you see in the story? Do you see God himself in the person of Christ responding? And how should we respond to him? He is not like an abstract painting, right? If we had to all walk into a gallery and look at one of those interesting squares or the blotches and look at that, we'd all probably, with our you know, fancy voices and mature, oh, well, I can see the, this is clearly a representation of something so profound. And another person, I see a splotch. And, and, and we'd all have different subjective opinions. Looking at Jesus is nothing like that. He is revealing himself to us clearly. There's no fuzziness. He is saying, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, come to save and to rescue and meet your greatest need of all, your need for redemption. The thing is, no one can force us to see this. Whether you're a Christian and you've seen that and responded to it by choosing to follow Jesus and still need to be seeing that every day to fuel your worship and your obedience, or whether you've never done that, you've never seen that, Jesus as the son of God come to save you and you need to respond to that. No one can force you to see it. But there is a key posture. Right? Have you ever, you ever had those, those funny little, uh, I don't know what they're called. They're like pictures or something. And depending on where you are standing, the image shifts. It's sort of like, and you can't quite see the image unless you look at it from a particular vantage point. There is a posture to see Jesus as he is. It's this. It's being humble on your knees in need. It's accepting that you are broken and in need of a savior. It's accepting because pride is the biggest block to revelation. It is the biggest block to see truth and the glory of God because Jesus doesn't respond to people looking over him, asking for him to prove himself. God has designed the gospel to be received by the humble. It's what faith is. I can't do it on my own. I'm in need. And so I ask you, what do you see? This is prophesied about in Isaiah. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. And now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I pray that we would all daily, Christian or coming to faith, have the humility and the posture to see Jesus as Lord of our lives and Savior who we can love and trust. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.